1: That's chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. DDW were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, and welcome to Western Civ. In this bonus author interview, I sit down with historian John Marshall as we discuss his new book, Clash. This is a book that I think is accessible to anybody, whether you like history or maybe even just current events. I actually sat down and read the entire thing in a a two-day sitting. It's really accessible. It's all about the conflict between the United States presidents of old and some current ones and the press those journalists that are supposed to be the bulwark of democracy. And as much as a lot of US presidents have stressed their love of democracy, they have not always loved the press, at least not those who speak kindly about their opponents and poorly about them. Some of our most high-minded presidents From FDR to John F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln have not always got along with the press, and it's important to remember that. It's a great book. We can't get into all of it today in this short interview, so we just kind of focus on three presidents. John Adams, Abraham Lincoln, and Woodrow Wilson. A couple of the ones that are really interesting to me, which is why I picked them. If you're interested in picking up a copy of the book, it's available today. I do have a link in the show notes. And if you're interested in supporting the show, check out the Patreon feed, link in the show notes, or the website. Same deal. But without further ado, my interview with John Marshall. With Lucky Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere. All right, so I'm sitting down here with Professor uh, John Marshall. Uh, for those of you tuning in, I'd, I have not resurrected Supreme Court Justice John Marshall. Um, this is this is Professor John Marshall. He's a new book that's out and available today, Clash, Presidents, and the Press in Times of Crises. And, you know, I picked it up and... I started to read through the introduction, and like anybody, I looked at it, and I immediately thought, well, this is a timely book, um, because... And I get this question, you know, a lot uh, dealing with history, which is people always want to know, okay, how much of what is going on right now, is just totally unique and/or an aberration, and how much of it is the product of a historical continuum in some degree. And usually, my answer is a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. Um, But you know, nobody over the last—if you live in the United States or even probably abroad—over the last five, six years can ignore the fact that, you know, we have where there seems to be a growing animosity in a lot of ways between the president and the press corps. And, you know, if you watch some of the uh, press interactions between former President Donald Trump and his various press secretaries, over the years, you know, you wonder, you know, is this, is this unique, you know, it should, are people always yelling this much, you know, is this something that is so consistent? I kind of want to start out with that question, because it's how you frame the book. And it's it's a really good intro to talk about, okay, well, and I know that it could be an extremely long question. And in a lot of ways, it's it's sort of the thesis of the overall work. But You know, how much of what we've seen in the last couple of years is something new and how much of it is something that's been going on, you know, since there have been a president and a press corps?
1: Well, that's a great uh, question, Adam. And, and, and first of all, thank you for inviting me on the show. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So I think it's safe to say that every president um, has been upset in some way uh, with the way that the press has covered him, uh, and they've they've g- grumbled and complained and sometimes lashed out. Uh, but the kind of animosity we, we've seen in recent years— uh, tends to go a, a bit in cycles. Uh, we've definitely seen it in the past. Uh, we saw it uh, towards the beginning of, of the Republic, particularly during uh, John Adams' presidency. Uh, we tend to see it during uh, when the United States is in in times of, of conflict, tension, particularly in times of war. Uh, so we saw it a lot uh, during the Civil War with Abraham Lincoln, during World War I, Woodrow Wilson, uh, some some degree during the Vietnam War with, with Lyndon Johnson and, and Richard Nixon. Uh, So there has been definitely periods of of deep animosity before uh, and uh, a lot of certainly other eras of of deep partisanship uh, with the press. I think what's changed the most is, is this because of the speed and the volume that our new technology allows uh, the press to, to to send out its messages. It just seems much more intense now. So, you know, back in the era of, of John Adams, uh, a reader might wait a, a week to get uh, the newspaper because they had to go by, most people lived in, in rural areas on farms and would have to get there by literally by horse uh, over really bad roads. Uh, so someone might print something very hostile to John Adams, but then it'd be another week until something else would come out, uh, maybe in defense of John Adams. Uh, you know, so by, this, by, by Lincoln's time of the Civil War, they, we, we had some railroads. The, the roads were better, but still you'd have to wait probably at least a day or two uh, before uh, you might get that kind of uh, partisanship or animosity. And then even during once we had mass media and and, and television and radio, uh, it would still people would wait to get the morning newspaper or their afternoon newspaper or watch the evening news or maybe tune into their radio favorite radio news. Uh, show uh, but generally you know they' they're waiting half a day or a day uh, to, to get uh, this kind of political commentary and political information but as you know as we all know uh, that's changed drastically uh, first with with cable news and 24hour seven days a week report so uh, if you turn into uh, whatever your favorite cable channel is you're going to be constantly getting what the political news is and often uh, commentary that might be um, hostile to the to the sitting president. And then, of course, with the Internet and social media, anybody, anywhere, if they've got any sort of connection, uh, can click uh, on, on what they want and get a constant stream of, if you're following Twitter or Facebook or uh, Reddit or, or anything else, um, it can be a, just a steady constant flow of people. Information that might be supporting uh, the the side that you're on, but also uh, stuff that's going to be very uh, potentially angry and hostile uh, to uh, the the president that you you might oppose.
0: Yeah, I think that there's really, you know, there's there's a couple of things going on here. Um, I tend to agree with you. And it's interesting. I didn't think about that until— you were just speaking right now that, you know, we have this incredible period of animosity, but, you know, other than the, um, the Afghan war, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan, which most people, you know, they knew was going on, but it, it wasn't, you know, an everyday headline thing the way that the Vietnam or uh, one of the world wars certainly was. Um, it, it's just a little, it's a little bit unique that, you know, during President Obama and during President Trump, you see this animosity in a period when there's, you know, there's not a, a ton of external um, pressure on the United States. But I I do think you know the technology is just it's so important in in understanding this you know because as you point out in the book and hopefully most listeners are aware you know there's nothing new about political newspapers. There's nothing new about uh, publications associating themselves with one party or another. That, that's that been going on for for ages. Like, th- there's nothing different there. What is different is how news functions. You know, because, you know, even when I was growing up, my father paid for a subscription to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Um, and he, that's how they got news and so you had to have good quality reputable news nowadays you know i don't pay for my news most americans probably don't pay for it it's paid for by who gets the clicks and so that changes the the strategy in terms of how you're presenting the news very dramatically you know and also you know you just look at social media as you were talking there i was just thinking about twitter and i thought can you imagine woodrow wilson tweeting um i mean he wouldn't he'd get to his character limit and he wouldn't even have, he wouldn't have finished one sentence and he wouldn't have even begun introducing his topic yet, you know, you know, because of the different ways of communication and how that's just sort of pigeonholed things. Um, and that kind of brings me to my next question is I hear this a lot, you know, as a teacher in in both the field of history and the field of English, which is, you know, how much is journalism declining as a field nowadays and how, how much is that impacting the way that the press interacts with both the American public and the United States presidency. You know, I think specifically of some of these new, you know, cable news networks, um, where it appears that people, you know, the the um, reporters are, are very interested in buying into conspiracy theories and things that, you know, things that the New York Times and other organizations would dismiss as as rubbish, um, you know, and you see some of those questions. So I, I often wonder about that. Like, how, how do you think the decline of journalism is impacting us. Uh, another
1: great question. And I liked what you said about, about trying to imagine Woodrow Wilson, uh, tweeting, uh, he'd you know, he wouldn't get through his preamble before running out of characters. Uh, and I think that's a really good point that in order to get something out on a tweet, uh, or even on the kind of the quick takes that they have on, on, on cable news, you have to just say something really punchy, uh, and often as, as controversial as you can to get attention to, to stand out against the rest of the noise, uh, Uh, My my students um, at Northwestern University, when I show them clips of old uh, TV broadcast news from the 60s and 70s, they're always astounded by how long the stories are. They would run for two or three or even five minutes, the stories. Whereas, you know, you turn on a a newscast now, the stories tend to be very quick, which you you, you lose subtlety uh, from. Uh, But to get to to your question about uh, journalism's decline... um, I'll look at it sort of the, the, the cup half full first, and then talk about the the cup half empty, uh, which your, your question gets at. In some ways, there I think there is more good journalism now than ever uh, again you know digital technology gives journalists the capacity to, to quickly gather information from around the world in, in a way that they never could before uh, gather information from people who, who would have been very hard to to contact uh, in the past uh, uh, and, and to allow different kinds of perspectives and voices uh, to be part of, of news stories uh, and of the ability also uh, especially for investigative reporting to to, to get through vast amounts of data uh, and, and analyze it quickly, you know, using the software that's available, I'm I, I'm old enough that I started my reporting days. Uh, you know, there were computers. Uh, there was a there was a you know barely an internet. Uh, but if I wanted to find go through courthouse records, I had to go to a, a basement room and ask for some files and sit through. You know, go through uh, folder after folder, trying to find the little piece of information I was looking for. It could take hours or even days, whereas now I could probably get it in an instant. And and, indeed, uh, the the good investigative reporters we have now are able to do that. so in, in some ways, there is more good quality news bef- than ever before. Uh, and also, you know, there's also more, I think, deeper specialized content uh, than used to exist. Uh, if you're interested in business news, financial news, there's any number of places you can go for really uh, in-depth information. If you're interested in sports like I am, uh, you can spend pretty much all day uh, looking through information about your, your your favorite team It's out there. Uh, in, in any any kind of specialty area uh, that you're talking about, including politics. So we have sites now like uh, Politico and Axios, um, as well as the cable news channels that are sort of constantly giving us information about what's going on in the political world. Uh, so there's more news out there in some ways than ever before. But I think uh, there is are I would say at least two areas of of crisis to get to the cup half full part of the equation. Uh, One is uh, especially for local news uh, for smaller cities towns uh, their their economic model of how they supported themselves has been completely shattered uh, because of, of, of the internet and social media uh, it's very hard for them to, to get any kind of advertising revenue and as you you mentioned you know not that many people are, are subscribing anymore so it's very hard for them to get enough revenue to, to support um, good reporting and uh, if they if mm-hmm. you know hundreds of them have closed around the country there's, there's now many, many communities that have no local newspaper or even really dedicated local news website. Uh, and that's really uh, disastrous when it comes to in, in terms of covering local governments and keeping an eye on corruption and letting people know what's, how their, their tax dollars are being spent. That's, um, in many places that doesn't exist anymore. And, and I think that's really harmful for democracy. And then I think in, in the other part of the of sort of the negative equation glass half full, glass half Empty part of it is, you know, something you mentioned, uh, the ease with which uh, conspiracy theories and half-truths and and untruths can now spread uh, through, um, you know, often through social media, but then sometimes it often percolates up into talk radio or sometimes onto cable news uh, of stories that are not either intentionally or unintentionally not carefully vetted, not verified um, their rumors. Uh, sometimes people with with bad intentions are uh, spreading them j- just to try to, to cause harm. Um, and it's harder for people today, I think, to have a common conversation about just what's happening in the world. Uh, you know, pre-pre cable news, or really even you know, pre-pre-pre before the internet became popular, uh, and people were relying on the evening newscast or, or their daily newspaper or weekly magazine. You know, people might would disagree about the issues. They would disagree. You know, here's the president's tax policy. I think it's bad. I think it's good. But People would, would know what the tax policy was that they were disagreeing about, or any you know foreign policy initiative. Uh, you know what, what is 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 uh, detente with the Soviet Union a good idea or a bad idea? Uh, people would disagree vehemently, but there was sort of a generally the same you know common set of facts that people could could argue about. But now people don't even have the same uh, sets of information to work with.
0: Yeah. And I should clarify, I do not, anybody who's listening, I am not suggesting that um, the quality of journalism education has declined um, in any way in this country. Um, I think th- to kind of build off what you said, like, I actually see the quality in a lot of areas as better than it's ever been because because of access to sources and information and the speed with which you can move Um, but the way I kind of see it is you have this incredibly good glass of wine but then by allowing anybody and everybody who wants to to post whatever they want on social media you almost pour a little bit of water into it right there you dilute the quality by just you know everybody's opinion somehow has become equivalent um, in in this way and that you know that wasn't the way that it used to be um, back then and and I don't even I'm not even getting into, you know, oh, my God, are you even corresponding with a real person when you're arguing online? You
1: know, sometimes it
0: could be a Russian bot that you're talking to. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that is often the case, you know. And so, you know, it is what it is. But what, let's go. One person who didn't have to deal with social media and tweeting and so on and so forth was John Adams, uh, the second president. Sometimes I call him the first president of the United States. I, I feel bad for him a lot of times times um, just because he, I mean, he has to follow George Washington and who wants to follow George Washington, you know, and George Washington, especially in his first term, gets a free pass in a lot of ways. And so he inherits this country that as you point out in the book i think there, there's a mistake sometimes in how america is covered in the history book sometimes like we defeated the british and immediately were the greatest superpower in the world and everything was perfect and we've been the greatest ever since and what people forget is there weren't even really functioning roads um when john adams takes over there wasn't a national currency there was an enormous amount of problems That he has to deal with and so he's getting criticized from the press a lot but the the if you open up the history book the thing that you're going to read when you read about John Adams is going to be the alien and sedition acts you know that that's going to be one of the top bullet points that comes up you know he didn't necessarily ask for him but he gets settled with these acts that are to a large extent designed to curbing uh, criticisms of the government and But I mean, they they backfire almost dramatically in a lot of ways. You know, so to what extent is he really harmed by these acts that were passed to try to help the administration?
1: Well, I think you're right. I think it was a, a grave uh, miscalculation on his part. Uh, and you're right that he didn't initially push for the Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, the Federalists in Congress did. Uh, but but he signed them. He didn't have to do that. Uh, and then he enforced them, which he also really didn't have to do. Um, and he enforced, uh, he and his administration enforced them very aggressively. Um and as you said, it was a time of really kind of great tension in the country. Uh, there really wasn't a consensus yet about what what kind of country we, we were going to be, how powerful the president would be, uh, and and sort of the idea of a of a loyal opposition was was a very much of a new concept. Uh, so we began to have the a fledgling uh, at that point. They called themselves Democrat. Republicans, uh, a fledgling opposition party to the to the Federalists who were in power, uh, the Democrat Republicans eventually became the Democrats of of, of Andrew Jackson uh, and, and 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 Thomas Jefferson. Uh. But at that time, they were sort of known more as, more often called Republicans and they were called Democrats at that point. Uh, but they were uh, very much in opposition to what uh, John Adams' policies were. They thought Adams was way too friendly to Britain, that, that Adams might try to bring back a, a monarchy. Uh, they, they called him the nickname, his, his rotundity, uh, because he was a bit on the plump side, and his rotundity kind of gave forth the idea that he was going to try to be. This sort of pompous uh, monarch type of figure, and they were afraid he was going to put his son John Quincy Adams to be the be a monarch after him. Uh, and the Democrat Republicans, meanwhile, were very uh, favorable towards the French, who had just undergone their revolution, uh, and they, they they were grateful to the French for their support of of the the colonists during during the revolution. Uh, and Adams and the Federalists were very, very suspicious of the Democrat Republicans uh, because they were they supported immigration from places like France and and the Irish coming in, maybe in even a few Germans starting to come in. And there was great concern that this was going to disrupt our the social, the new social fabric of this country and meanwhile, the French and the British are, are engaged in this sort of quasi-war at sea where they're they're attacking each other and, and, and kidnapping each other's sailors. And sometimes American sailors get involved in that. So the, there was a lot of tension. And, and the Federalists really had, in their minds, were concerned that these Democratic Republicans were sort of going to overthrow this fine republic that, that they had created uh, and that this kind of uh, scurrilous dissent had to be stamped out, uh, which is what the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, did. Uh, The Alien Acts were were geared towards uh, trying to curb immigration, uh, making it harder for immigrants to vote, and deporting immigrants. Uh, The Sedition Act made it uh, illegal to uh, write or um, say anything that was considered uh, malicious uh, towards uh, the government, or untrue towards the government, uh, which was a pretty pretty broad definition, and the Federalists, who completely controlled the courts at that point, uh, in addition to Congress and the presidency, uh, went out and prosecuted uh, at the federal level more than, than 20 people, a lot of them Editors, uh, and then if you start to include what was going on at the at the state level, it's more than a hundred people uh, were prosecuted under the Sedition Act. Uh, many of them people who were who were printing newspapers or, or pamphlets, which were also popular in those days. Uh, prosecuting them, and then uh, there would be very quick trials uh, in front of uh, federalist judges, uh, and and people uh, would be put in jail. Probably the most. Famous case was a was a congressman named Matthew Lyon who was from Vermont. Uh, he fought in the Revolutionary War. He was a he was an Irish immigrant, uh, and he he got on actually got in literally a, a brawl on the floor of of Congress with a with a Federalist uh, congressman uh, who they'd been insulting each other and they started hitting each other with with fire pokers and canes, just to give you a sense of the kind of tension that existed, uh, and and Lyon was also a. A newspaper uh, and, uh, editor and, and magazine publisher, he had a magazine called *The Scourge of the Aristocracy*, uh, which went after the Federalists uh, pretty pretty heavily. Uh, and he, in that *Scourge of the Aristocracy*, Matthew Lyon accused uh, John Adams of of being uh, full of. Uh, too much pomp and 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 uh, being being a fool, uh, and that was enough to prosecute him. And he was, I think, it was a four day trial. No, he actually had, he had four days to prepare for the trial. Uh, they they uh, arrested him. They had four days to prepare for the trial. The trial was very quick. Uh, he spent uh, four months in in prison. Uh, was fined uh, just for criticizing John Adams. And and there were dozens of cases like that across across the country. Uh, but th- those prosecutions proved to be very unpopular pretty quickly. Uh, I think most people saw that that this was unfair in, in the Democratic Republican Party, which was just kind of a fledgling effort at that point. It actually gave them more impetus and more energy uh, and, and got them to organize even more uh, because they were so outraged by what was going on. And even though Adams and the Federalists were hoping that the Sedition Act would, would curb uh, the amount of opposition press. There actually began, there were by the time it was done in, in 1800, uh, there were more opposition newspapers it, it, it supporting the Democrat-Republicans than there had been before the Sedition Act. So it totally backfired. Uh, it energized the Democratic-Republicans. And as, as we know, John Adams uh, lost the election uh, somewhat narrowly to, to Thomas Jefferson in 1800. Uh, and, and it's hard to say the Sedition Acts were entirely responsible for that, but they were certainly a factor. And then when, once uh, Jefferson became president, he allowed, he allowed the Sed- Alien and Sedition Acts to, to last.
0: I wonder how many presidents in, in recent memory would like to be able to pass a law that you can't say anything bad about them. Um, maybe <laughs> I think quite they, a few. <laughs> maybe there weren't a a f- we shouldn't bring up the Alien Institution Act. You don't want to plant that idea in anyone's mind. But um, you do point out, you know, in the book that Adams loses very narrowly in the election to eighteen hundred. And, you know, one of the reasons that he loses narrowly is um, so the southern slaveholding states have an unfair advantage um, in terms of how their populations are counted because they three-fifths of all enslaved people count towards their electoral votes. And if they didn't get that bump, you know, there's a very good chance that Adams wins overall, which is a great segue into our next person because Adams is interesting, but most people want to hear about Lincoln and, and Wilson. And, I, and I'm, I'm interested in Abraham Lincoln a lot because I think there was some really good stuff here in this book that people don't understand. Because if you look up Abraham Lincoln, you're going to see probably two things, great emancipator and freed the slaves, right? Those are, those are the two things that apparently Abraham Lincoln did single-handedly. But when Abraham Lincoln becomes president at first, uh, he's he's kind of a disappointment to the abolitionist press in a lot of ways. And the abolitionist press is very powerful in a lot of areas and very instrumental in his election. But he doesn't start in a place uh, where, I think, based off of the narrative that we're taught about Abraham Lincoln, that we would expect him to be. Um, so what was Lincoln's initial relationship like with some of those key abolitionist press figures, you know, like your William Lloyd Garrison's and some of those individuals, because I, I really think a lot of people are confused about where Lincoln came in. Yeah,
1: that's it, it, Lincoln is endlessly fascinating. Uh, and that's why there's so many books that have been written about him. Uh, and I, I think one, one thing that makes him great is... Th- was his ability to adapt and to change uh, and to embrace new ideas uh, and to to really um, I think evolve uh, his, his thinking as he went. So Lincoln uh, from the start really hated the idea of slavery. Uh, you know, uh, his early writings make that clear. Uh, but he wasn't an abolitionist um, at the start. Uh, he um, supported the, the Underground Railroad uh, and, and some anti-slavery efforts. He didn't think slavery should be extended into new territories. Uh, but he did not favor ending slavery where it already existed um, prior to the Civil War uh, in the South. He thought that would be way too disruptive of the Union. He wasn't sure if the Constitution would allow that. Uh, so he was in favor of, of leaving it alone. Uh, and then probably you know, worse than that, he he supported the fugitive slave law, which, which made it possible if, if someone... Was able to escape slavery in the South, uh, and incentivize people in the North to to capture the uh, the people who were fleeing enslavement uh, and and bring them back to the South. and And Lincoln supported uh, at least prior to the Civil War. He he supported that. Uh, and like like most white people of of the era, um, he had a lot of lot of racist attitudes, which I won't I won't repeat here, um, but they were. They would be things that would make most of us cringe today, uh, Look, you know, looking back at it in, in retrospect. Um, so so you know, Lincoln was complicated when it came to slavery. He, he didn't think that um, black people in the north should have the right to vote or serve on juries uh, prior to the Civil War when he was a, a legislator in Illinois. Uh, but he was, you know, even though he wasn't in favor of abolition, he did um, read— what abolitionists wrote. His law partner William Herndon was much more f- favorable towards towards abolitionism uh, prior to the Civil War, and and Herndon subscribed to some abolitionist newspapers, and he would read them uh, to to Lincoln, and Lincoln. You know, also, very smart uh, politician, uh, an, an ambitious politician. Uh, so when he starts thinking about running for the presidency uh, as as a Republican in the in the new Republican Party, uh, a big part of the Republican Party uh, was based on anti slavery, and Lincoln uh, allied himself closely with uh, Joseph Medill, who was a, the publisher of the Chicago Tribune, uh, and. You know, leading leading newspaper in the Midwest, uh, and Medill was almost like his his campaign manager. <clears throat> and Lincoln also uh, was was friendly with uh, Horace Greeley, who was maybe the most famous editor at at that point of the era, uh, editor of the New York Tribune, which was one of the few newspapers that really had sort of a national circulation. And and Greeley was very much anti-slavery. So Lincoln, at at first, Greeley was a little lukewarm towards Lincoln, but Lincoln went and spoke in in New York City, uh, got the support of, of Greeley and some of the other editors. Uh, so, so Lincoln understood if he's going to get the Republican nomination and, and have strong Republican support in the general election, that he really had to uh, show some, some support for the anti-slavery cause. Uh, and he still was not supporting immediate abolition, but at least uh, to listen to that. Uh, once Lincoln became president, uh, winning, winning in a, as we know, in a, in a four-way race without a without a majority of the vote, but but enough to win the Electoral College. Uh, he's still, you know, desperately trying to keep the union together, not wanting the South to secede. Uh, and so he's still, in, you know, in support of the fugitive slave law, still not supporting emancipation. And that greatly frustrated uh, the abolitionist uh, editors. You mentioned William Lloyd Garrison, editor of The, of the Liberator. Uh, of course, there was Frederick Douglass, uh, who um, at that point was publishing his, his Douglass' monthly uh, magazine. Um, and they, of course, supported immediate abolition of slavery and, and, and emancipation. Uh, and so every time Lincoln was very cautiously... Um, resisting anything that he considered a, a drastic step uh, the abolitionist editors would publish something and, and, and make speeches denouncing Lincoln uh, they were also very angry at Lincoln for not allowing the uh, Black men to join the Union Army, uh, which they said would would have, would help strengthen the army and and show his, Lincoln's support for freedom. Uh, but even once once the Civil War started, Lincoln, uh, for a couple of years, uh, did not support that because he was afraid that he would lose <clears throat> support of uh, more racist elements I- in the North who who would have opposed having having black people in the army. Uh, but as, as, as we know, the war went very badly for the North at the beginning. Uh, they were losing battles right and left. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of, and eventually hundreds of thousands of soldiers dying and uh, costing an uh, incredible amount of money. And, uh, th- 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 you know, there's great fear that the North would, would lose the war. Uh, and the abolitionists, meanwhile, kept up their pressure. Uh, And they would – people like uh, Garrison and and others would would, would make speeches. Some of them would would come to Washington, D.C. and make speeches. Uh, And there was an instance when uh, Douglas, Frederick Douglas, was in Washington and he thought, okay, I'm going to try to meet with the president, Uh, not having a great deal of confidence that he would be – even allowed in to meet with the president because um, the idea of a, a black man, especially a now-spoken abolitionist, coming to speak to, to the president was was just considered a really kind of a, a dream at that time. It was sort of a an incredible idea um, that a, a black man would be in the in the Oval Office like that. Uh, but when Lincoln heard it, Douglas was waiting with you know there'd be like hundreds of hundreds of people on the stair staircases of the White House trying to go in to meet Lincoln. Uh, wasn't wasn't quite the controlled environment we have now. And when Lincoln heard that Douglas was out there for him, he immediately had Douglas ushered in, uh, and they had a long conversation. Uh, and, and Lincoln asked for Douglas's advice. Uh, so there began to have not just uh, not just Lincoln reading things from the abolitionists, but actually talking with the abolitionist. Uh, but still, the abolitionists were frustrated by, by how slowly Lincoln was was moving, and, and another aspect of Lincoln's policy, uh, what he favored was, uh, for any freed black people, um, he didn't think that the black and white races would, would, would get along, uh, so he favored... Uh, Sending black people uh, to Central America or to Africa and, and to colonize uh, countries there uh, and to go away from the United States, where they many of them had been, whose families had been here for more than a century, but he he, he thought it was the best thing to do was to send them away and, and colonize other places, and that that greatly outraged uh, Douglas and Garrison and other abolitionists. Uh, so in the summer of 1862. Uh, Wars going badly. Abolitionists are denouncing Lincoln. Uh, Horace Greeley's newspaper, the uh, Tribune, had a had a famous editorial, the, the Prayer of Twenty Millions, about the great suffering of of, of people in slavery, and um, Lincoln was resisting. But he he eventually came to the conclusion that it would be best um, for for the Union cause uh, to support um, emancipation. Uh, He was a little worried about losing the Republican nomination in in, in 1864, and and he knew he needed those abolitionist votes. Uh, And he decided it'd be best to to allow black people to join the Union army uh, and to support emancipation, that this would give great, um, much more strength to the army and much more energy uh, to the cause. and so finally, kind of his moral compass, a man who always thought slavery was wrong, kind of aligned with his political compass and his military strategy compass. Uh, and he issued a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in, in September 1862. Once the Union Army had, had won the Battle of Antietam, he wanted to have a kind of win uh, under his belt to, sh- to kind of sh- say that he was doing this in a position of strength. He, issu- he issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation that, that uh, uh, slaves in 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 the Confederacy would would should be freed. Uh, he left out the the slave states that were still part of the Union because uh, he he didn't want to lose their support. Uh, but he, and he said is if the if the South did not rejoin the Union by January first, that he was going to make this Emancipation proclamation official in the law of the land, which indeed is what, what happened. So uh, a combination of factors pushed Lincoln uh, to that point, but certainly the, the, the pressure of, of the abolitionist press, which 30 years early earlier had been really considered kind of the, the fringe of, of political thought in the United States. It was just considered a wild, radical idea to be in favor of abolitionism. But gradually, they became part of the political mainstream, especially in the Republican Party, and that, and that did influence Lincoln.
0: Yeah, in reading the book, I was really interested in a couple of points. Number one was, I was just I was unaware of the extent of the relationship that existed, you know, between Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln to the point where Lincoln is on multiple occasions asking Frederick Douglass for advice about what he should do. Um, and I mean, you pointed out like the the notion of. In the racist ideas of the nation at the time, the notion of the president of the United States asking a black man for advice is is just incredible. Uh, and it does show to a large extent that Lincoln is willing to learn. And I, But the other thing that I was blown away by is just how much the abolitionist press continued to almost push Lincoln, just kept pushing him and pushing him a little bit and a little bit and a little bit to make this about more than just reestablishing the union. I think there's a lot of times in in wars where you get to this tipping point uh, in terms of casualties where people say, okay, this has to be about something more at this point than simply territorial gains. Certainly that happens in World War One. I. I think it happens in a lot of different wars where you say like, okay, this can't be just so that we can have this city back or something. We've lost hundreds of thousands of people. And and I think that happens in the Civil War. And you you see a point where People say like, okay, well, we can't just restore the status quo um, back again after everything that we've been through. But I do think the abolitionist press is really effective in getting Lincoln to do that. But I want to keep going so that we're kind of not I don't want to get too bogged down, but he's really he's an interesting guy. But, you know, one topic about Lincoln that is it's tough to talk about, you know, his racism. And certainly, I mean, we can't. It's lazy scholarship sometimes to just imprint our modern perspectives on people of the past. Certainly, we don't have anything in common with somebody who lived in 1850, by and large. Um, but still, it's something to deal with. The other thing to deal with is Lincoln does suspend civil rights um, during the Civil War. Um, and I don't know what you think about that. Is it Was it absolutely necessary as a, as a war expediency? Um, you know, what... What could you what are we to make of this decision? He won't be the first. He won't be the last person who does it either that we talk about.
1: Yeah, that's another excellent question, Adam. And I I think the point you make about it's uh, you have to be careful as historians not to imprint our own. Uh, conceptions of, of what uh, what's right and wrong <clears throat> to people who are living in a very different era under very different circumstances uh, and I think that applies to Lincoln's decisions to suspend habeas corpus and, and uh, Also, um, he—not always directly, you know, often his his generals and other people in the military uh, engaging in in censorship of of the press in the North. Uh, They shut down newspapers that— opposed the draft and, and and spoke out against the union effort. Uh, the Secretary of War Stanton and, and others would would censor what was going off, going through the telegraph wires to try to make the union cause look like it was doing better than it actually was. Uh, newspapers were shut down. Uh, there were some, some uh, Lincoln was very close to throwing some editors uh, in jail because he thought they had purposely printed something false. It, uh, it ended up that, uh, uh, these were democratic editors It was ended up, there was a Republican editor who had, had circulated it cause he was trying to cause a rumor that would help, help him in the stock market. But, um, so in the, in the, end, he didn't, Lincoln didn't jail those editors, but, but he was, he was very tempted to, um, so there was a lot of sus- suppression of, of, of free press during the civil war and, um, I would like to say he shouldn't have done that, um, sitting back here in, in, in 2022, uh, and that there should always be a free press, and, and I do believe that. Uh, and I think, you know, in the end, the Union would have still have won the war uh, without having done that. Uh, maybe with more difficulty, maybe with more, more casualties as a result. And, and, and the precedent of, of suppressing the, the press is, is very dangerous. And as you mentioned, other presidents uh, went on and did it too, uh, but I'm also not in charge uh, of a country in a time of, of great, horrible conflict and bloodshed with, with, you know, with soldiers dying. And uh, Lincoln had it. <clears throat> excuse me, get a little drink of water here Uh, Lincoln had a famous quote where he said why he said "I, I can shoot a young man for deserting the Union Army, um, and people would consider that the right thing to do. But then, but they say I shouldn't shut down a newspaper that might be encouraging that young boy to desert the Union Army. And what, what you know, what's really right? Uh, so he's a commander in chief in in a middle of a horrible, terrible, bloody conflict that he feels like his side must win. Uh, so I don't, even though I wish he hadn't done it, um, and. I think it maybe would have been better if he hadn't. I don't really blame him for it uh, because he's going. It's the worst time this country has ever had, Uh, and and sort of this you know survival of 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 the nation is is at stake, and uh, and add it add to it the you know the the you know effort to. uh, whether slavery would continue or not in the United States was also still on the line. Uh, So, uh, again, I I don't – I'm not comfortable with it. I don't like it. Uh, But, you know, under the circumstances, I think it's it's understandable why Lincoln did it.
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody's comfortable. I think second-guessing Abraham Lincoln is a dangerous prospect in a lot of ways, you know. And you have to keep in mind this is – it's a civil – war where you have people in the north who sympathize with the south and potentially vice versa and who's to say what's being published in a newspaper that's coming out of Cincinnati or something you know I'm thinking of a state that's very close or location that's very close you know isn't hoping that the other side prevails in some way shape or form and he does keep the union together in the end and you can't and he can't argue with success to an extent, I suppose. Um, But I want to talk about the guy who I personally think is one of the most interesting United States presidents of all time. I'm endlessly fascinated by Woodrow Wilson. He's... You know, his rise to, to the presidency is extremely rapid. Uh, he comes from New Jersey, he comes from Princeton, he's a professor, um, and that's gonna be very relevant in his attitude towards the press. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a second. He wins the election of 1912 because the Republicans essentially split their vote between Taft and Roosevelt. Um, and two years into his presidency, World War One, the Great War breaks out, you know, he, but he has these high ivory tower ideals that come into place, and those don't always bear out in what he does from a realistic standpoint. But let's, can you just talk about his attitude towards the press for a second? Because it's so fascinating. I mean, he clearly thought he was so much better. <laughs> right, I think, that, <laughs> I think that's right. He, he was very kind of haughty uh,
1: personality. He, he, he was a Son of a minister, and you know, and I think he kind of really felt that he, you know, he understood God's word uh, better than the average person. And then he'd been, you know, president of, of Princeton University and a professor for a long time. And when he met with reporters, uh, people said it was like uh, it, it was like a professor lecturing his his dimwitted students. Uh, and he was endlessly frustrated that the reporters didn't just write exactly what he said, uh, because he. Thought he was always the smartest guy in the room, which he may have been, uh, and uh, that uh, he had he had the the, you know, the wisdom of, of of God behind him. Uh, so when reporters printed other things, uh, he was very upset about that. He was. Um, he, he was an innovator in a couple of ways in terms of dealing with the press. Uh, he was the first president to hold press conferences uh, because, in, in theory, he thought it was a great idea to, for president to, to explain his ideas to to reporters and uh, that reporters could help then uh, explain that policy to the American people. Uh, but the press conferences were went pretty much by by everyone's account were were just dreadful uh, because again he was he would just sort of stand there and lecture the reporters uh, and, and expect them to be stenographers uh, and would be re- rather boring about it. Uh, so uh, it was an innovation, but he didn't he didn't do it particularly well. He did not have a friendly, warm tone with them uh, and wouldn't joke around with them in the kind of way that the, the more successful presidents uh, with the press do. Uh, then his other innovation was he didn't officially have a press secretary, but he was really the first to have people act in that kind of capacity. He he had his close aide Joseph Tumulty, would meet regularly with reporters and feed them information and answer their questions and try to give them access to other people to talk to. So sort of for all intents and purposes, he was sort of acting like a press secretary. And then once uh, World War I was over and and Wilson was over in Paris uh, trying to... uh, get the uh, peace agreement uh, signed and uh, get the League of Nations going. He had Ray Standard Baker, who had been a famous muckraking journalist uh, who who thought highly of Wilson. He had Baker sort of act as his spokesman. Uh, and Wilson wouldn't talk directly with the press at that point, or, or very rarely. Uh, but he would have uh, Baker do so and, and deliver Wilson's messages. Uh, So there was those innovations, but Wilson was very suspicious of of reporters and journalists. And it really hurt him uh, during those peace negotiations in Paris when he would try to hide information about what was going on, not really be forthcoming about what policies he he was pushing and what what his plans were. Uh, So when he finally... uh, Sort of announced what the agreement was, and 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 the League of Nations was his was his big proposal. There hadn't been sort of the groundwork laid with the press uh, in support of it. Uh, so in the meantime, while Wilson's not really talking to them. The reporters back in Washington are, are talking to the Republican senators and congressmen uh, who are lining up to oppose whatever it is that, that Wilson's going to bring back. Uh, so in Many ways the Republican opposition to Wilson was able to set the terms of debate uh, once Wilson returned to the United States and tried to push through uh, the League of Nations. Uh, so it, it was a, a frostiness towards reporters that I think really backfired.
0: Yeah, the, the overarching sense that I got while reading the book was that he this is somebody who just doesn't get it. This is somebody who just, you know, he truly does believe he's smarter than everybody else and he doesn't understand why, why would you ask questions? about what I'm doing. Obviously, it's the right thing to do. I'm doing it, you know. And as you write in the book, um, you know, very, very prickly about any questions related to his personal life. You know, his wife passes away fairly early on, his first wife. Uh, doesn't, certainly doesn't want to answer questions about that. Doesn't appreciate the press looking into his family in any way. Gets a lot of bad press from um, African-American newspapers because he doesn't do anything about lynching because, you know, and we, I don't want to go in to his racial attitudes because they've been well covered um, in, in, other, in other points. But, you know, so he, he gets bumped around by that. But then he really does, you know, he really does dig his own grave, doesn't he, um, in Paris because he won't let, at first he won't let the porters in at all and then they're going to go home. Um, and then he lets them in a little bit, but he needed them. He needed them to pass the League of Nations. You make a great point in the book and I talked about it a little bit Um, Elsewhere, that there's radio really doesn't exist yet um, as a large medium. And Wilson was a brilliant public speaker. If what do you think if Wilson had? I often thought when reading the book if Wilson had radio the way FDR was is going to have radio. I I wonder if it wouldn't have turned out a little bit differently.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a good chance it it would have. Of course, you know we can't we can't prove it would have turned out differently, but. Wilson was known as a great orator. Uh, and when he would travel the country and, and, and make speeches, he was very successful at getting people to support his policies. Um, he would have had to adjust his speaking style to radio. It's 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 a different kind of, of medium and you need kind of a softer, warmer tone uh, when you're when you're talking to people and you and use, use some sense of humor and, and, and so forth. Uh, in, but I think there's a good chance um, Given how good he was with words, uh, that if he had that medium available to him, that he could have swayed a, a large part of the public uh, to to support his his League of Nations and his his other other points with the peace treaty.
0: Yeah, because by the time he's back in the United States, as you mentioned, the Republicans have sort of laid the groundwork that this is going to be opposed. Um, and without the newspapers and there's a lot in circulation at that point i don't remember the the numbers are in the book but there's there's a lot and without them on his side you know he decides he's going to go on this whistle stop tour of the west to try to sell this deal to an extent his decision not to be friends with the press is what kills him in the end because he suffers a stroke I, of course, as a result of that and passes away uh, some time later, you know, he's kind of president for a little bit. He's kind of not. Right. And that, and that made it that much uh, harder for him to
1: try to pass the League of Nations because he's not actively.
0: Yeah. You know, he's, he's basically
1: an invalid the last year or so in office.
0: Right. And there, and like I said, there's been plenty written on that. But, but of course, something that we didn't talk about is, you know, Wilson has high lofty ideals and morality and they they come out a lot when he's talking about you know the the bastion of democracy that this is going to be after we win world war what they called the great war of course at the time and but you know he, he's critical of Lincoln for suspending civil rights but he doesn't want better doesn't he Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, he definitely did, and uh, really very hypocritical in his attitudes towards democracy. Uh, the, you know, the, the the war to save democracy, but meanwhile he's crushing it at home. So there were there were three different laws uh, passed uh, that Wilson supported: uh, espionage act, uh, another sedition act, and a trading with the enemy act. And sort of in combination, uh, they basically made it illegal for. Anybody to write or say anything opposing the war effort, uh, opposing the draft, uh, opposing Wilson's military strategy, and uh, through the Justice Department uh, and actually through the through the Post Office, uh, they were able to suppress. Uh, uh, you know, more, more than a, a thousand people were were prosecuted uh, under these laws. Uh, you know, some of them newspaper editors, some of them labor leaders, uh, some pastors who were who were pacifist, speaking out against the war, uh, and uh, the uh, postal service uh, would cut would um, cut out the um, reduced. Uh, newspapers and magazines have a, have a you know, second-class mailing privileges that make it cheaper for them to to be mailed uh, than than your average letter um, by weight. Uh, that's a Policy going back to George Washington, uh, but Wilson's uh, Postmaster General Albert Burleson had a whole crew of people who would read through newspapers, and if they spotted something they thought was against the war effort, uh, they would revoke those those mailing privileges. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the uh, Attorney General is going after and prosecuting uh, editors and, and other people who spoke out or wrote out wrote against the war, you know, including one Congressman Victor Victor Berger of of Milwaukee. Uh, who was a socialist, uh, there were briefly some socialists in Congress, and he was anti-war and he, his, his Milwaukee leader published things against the war and they arrested him and prosecuted him and uh, he was convicted uh, for, for speaking out, out against the war in the draft.
0: Yeah, what's interesting is is again how broad some of these things tend to be enforced, um, and I think of the Abrams case, which you you talk about in the book a little bit. You know, that's. That's not even necessarily people opposing a war with the Central Powers at that point. That's that's individuals opposing to a large extent getting involved in what is become a civil war in Russia and what's gonna become the Soviet Union down the road, you know, and they end up in, in hot water. Of course the Supreme Court sides with the administration in that case, upholding the act. Th- though I should point out for the listeners, um, the powerful dissents of Justices Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes sort of form the basis of what's going to be um, um, stronger uh, court cases down the road that that will eat in that will uh, I should say buttress the uh, the the First Amendment and people's ability to speak out against it. But I, I always find Wilson to be such an interesting interesting figure. I kind of wonder what he would have been like to sit down with on uh, in a normal conversation. you know you kind of get a sense that you know Lincoln is a, is a warmer individual. He, Wilson in some ways just seems ice cold um, to me in, in a lot of different areas. but his treatment of the press, I do think he, he really dug his own grave with that one. Well, we talked about a lot um, this morning, but I, I, I always ask, you know is there anything is there anything that you think we missed? A lot. I mean, we haven't missed all the other people in the book. I, yeah, the, the book goes, way, goes past Wilson, I should point out. You go all the way through uh, President Donald Trump at the end. So it, it does it does keep going. Um, it's just this, we'd be here for six hours instead of for one. So if, is there anything that but, but that you really feel like people should know? Well, you ask great questions, Adam. Um, you know, I, I think I would just highlight
1: um, the point that I think you started to make was that, you know, the presidents who are able to build some kind of personal rapport with uh, reporters and have smart kind of communications Strategy, generally, or are the presidents who are remembered the highest in history? And in, in, in historians, from time to time, you know, make a list of how they they rank the presidents. I think one just just came out, and you know, the ones that are towards the top, or you know, Lincoln. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was very good at a personal level, very smart about dealing with reporters. FDR was the same. Ronald Reagan had a really smart, good communication strategy and was kind of friendly and fun to deal with, you know, with reporters. Um, and, And they're. You know, JFK, you know, tends to be ranked towards the top. Uh, So I think if I were advising a president, I would tell them, you know, no matter how much you're frustrated or angry about what is being written and said about you, the the, the best as best you can, if you can cultivate, still cultivate those relationships, um, it's going to help you in the end.
0: Yeah, it's important to remember that uh, historians write past uh from a long time back journalists write the past as it's ongoing you know so that's going to be your so, so immediate that first rough
1: draft of history that journalists write often influence what you know the eventual version of history that tends to be remembered so it's important for presidents to get that first rough draft in their favor
0: yeah, and I totally I agree with you, um, and I would also say don't read the comment section if you're a president in uh, in, 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 in in literally anything ever. Uh, that's, that is that is straight from you know the ninth circle of hell. I'm pretty sure that's where those those comments come from. But um, well, thanks so much. Um, it's it's an excellent book. I was. We were talking before we started here I, th- I think I finished it in two days um, you know it's it's a very good read it, it's accessible even if you're not you know an, an avid history reader um, I think it's good and it's so relevant to today and I think it's going to be relevant for a good in good ways and bad ways um, I think it's going to be relevant for a while you know how especially ongoing, the evolution of technology and those things in our our information systems and how that's going to affect us as a people and the way that it interacts with our leaders. So a a very relevant thing for people to learn. And we can always learn from the past.
1: Well, I would agree. And and thank you, Adam, very much for your kind words and and for inviting me uh, onto your show and and for uh, having this great conversation. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it, it has been fantastic.